Time for Swordplay. Alex, after 40 years, Trinity Broadcast Network is cutting ties with controversial televangelist Kenneth Copeland. Starting in October, they will no longer air his daily program, Believer's Voice of Victory. Yeah, sounds like a great time to introduce the Swordplay TV show. We should send in our application. You know, it looks like the network qualifications include, let's see here, uh, willingness to swindle people out of millions of dollars, make them feel good about it, and then retire after 40 years. Hmm. You know, I, I feel like we've seen this playbook somewhere before. If only I could nah. put my finger on it. No. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Greek Esther. That's right. We did Esther as we have it in our English Bibles today. So now we're going to cover Greek Esther. We'll talk about what is Greek Esther in just a moment, but we have lots of information to cover. So if you happen to have maybe a uh, copy of the NRSV or the, uh, I recommend the Lexham English Septuagint, or you can just go online, look for a copy of the Septuagint, you might try to follow along and read these editions uh, that we're going to speak about regarding Esther. So Nick, first questions, uh, what additions have been made to the book of Esther in the Septuagint? Esther, as it is found in the Septuagint, adds 107 verses to what we have in Esther's Hebrew form. The majority of these additional verses are contained in six blocks of text, which are dispersed throughout the book. These additions are are variously numbered depending upon the translation. The New Revised Standard Version actually incorporates both. So you have edition A, but they track it with chapter and verses. Um, and that's that's the two different styles, right? Some mark the editions, editions A through F, others, and this follows 4th century church writer Jerome, and then later Stephen Langston, uh, who is credited with putting in the, the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles. It follows the Latin and Langston, by the way, he's a 16th century guy, but uh, they retain those chapter and verse designations from 104 all the way to 1624 uh, in the book of Esther. Uh, and so, by the way, Langston, he just took the form of Jerome's Esther, which had the Hebrew translation followed by all the additions as addenda, and he just numbered them with chapters and verses consecutively. So we're 10-3 of Hebrew Esther leaves off, 10-4 is where Langston picked up and started numbering. All right. Addition if I, A. If I'm not mistaken, I think Jerome, he is the one who decided what was an addition and what wasn't by comparing it to the Hebrew text he had at the time. And so he said, oh, this other stuff, these are additions. So he like cut and pasted those out of the Greek story and then pasted them into the end of the Hebrew version that he had. Well, I think he had the Hebrew text, and he had the Greek text. And in comparison, he said, oh, there's all these extra bits. And so he took the Hebrew text, and he just took the Greek parts and and added those onto 
again as as kind of an appendix to um and it by the way it, it ends up being a jarbled mess right when you put them in, in that order and you don't have them in the the right order in the uh in the rest of the story but uh I, I think that's and by the way he was he was charged to do that by one of the popes um i forget the guy's name now but anyway he he asked the pope to do it and the pope gave him permission Edition A. <laughs> this is going to be swordplay today, folks. It will be. Real yeah. swordplay. This is great. Edition A, or chapter 11 to, to 12, verse 6, serves as a prologue to the book. It's actually placed before chapter 1. Edition B, which is 13, 1 through 7, is placed between 3, verse 13, and 3, verse 14 in the book of Esther. Edition C, or 13, verse 8 to 14, verse 19, following that follows Esther and Mordecai's exchange in chapter 4. Edition D, which is 15, verse 1 through verse 16, is actually an expansion of 5, verses 1 and 2. It's a dramatic retelling of Esther's appearance before King Xerxes. And then edition E, which is 16 verses 1 through 24, that belongs between 8 verse 2 and 8 verse 13 in Hebrew Esther. And then finally, edition F, which is 10 4 through 11 verse 1, that actually wraps up the whole book, and it belongs after 10 verse 3. That's how it breaks down. <laughs> Those are the editions. So... Alex, talk for a minute here. How do we know that these are additions to the original story, the original Hebrew text of Esther? Yeah, so you could go a couple different directions with this question. So here's the trajectory I'm following. David De Silva, in his introduction to the uh, Apocrypha second edition, uh, we've referenced his book quite a few times in our uh, Apocrypha episodes. He suggests that we see Greek Esther not in terms of additions, right? These aren't adding to the Masoretic text. As And when we say Masoretic text, we're referring to Codex Leningradensis, the codex from 1000 AD that is the basis for our English Old Testament. That's what we translate off of. And so he's saying we shouldn't see these as additions to that text, the Masoretic text, um, but rather the... Uh, Greek Esther should be seen as just a different edition of Esther altogether, not some modified version of the Esther that belongs to our Masoretic text, but a different trajectory, a different line, a different tradition of Esther stories. And this happens a lot in the ancient world. You have one traceable strand of story, and then there's a different version that isn't necessarily in response to or based off another version. It's just a different line of manuscripts or transmission that's that happens for one reason or the other this happens a lot with uh bible manuscripts in general where you have um the masoretic text but you have something that was existing before the masoretic text right before the masoretes came along in the middle ages you have what would be the proto masoretic text whatever they were going off of to create the masoretic text you know then you have the dead sea scrolls and you would have like proto dead sea scrolls right whatever they were going off of you have the septuagint and then you have the 
proto-Septuagint? What were the Hebrew manuscripts that were, the Septuagint was looking at when it translated? So this just has to do with manuscript transmission. And that makes sense to me, since the Greek, Greek copies that we have of Esther, they, they predate the Hebrew copies that we have by several centuries. And so it's reasonable to see that the Greek edition is actually from a different line of tradition than the Masoretic version, as we have in our English Bibles today. Some scholars, they've even proposed that the Greek edition that we have of Esther more closely resembles what would have been the original Hebrew story of Esther, uh, much closer than what we have today in our Masoretic text. And this position seems to focus especially on editions uh, C and D, which are the prayers of Mordecai and Esther, and then Esther's, um, the the climactic scene where Esther goes in before Artaxerxes' presence. And it compares, especially the prayers of Mordecai and Esther, to Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, to Judith's prayer in Judith 9, illustrating that the Greek edition it fits in well with the other literature written in the Second Temple period, because in those prayers of Mordecai and Esther, there are some Hebraisms within the Greek that don't reflect Greek, but they reflect an original Hebrew source. It's also hard to deny the similarity of editions A and F to other apocalyptic literature seen in the Old Testament and the Second Temple era, and for that matter, even the New Testament, especially Revelation. We'll talk about that when we get there. On the other hand, though, uh, and you'll speak more to this, Nick, perhaps some commentators think that there are some new contradictions and new inconsistencies brought into the story when you incorporate these Greek texts. So what I think, though, is we have a different version of Esther entirely with their own lines of transmission. You have the Masoretic text and its own line of transmission for Greek for, for Esther. Then you have the Greek text and its own line of transmission for Greek Esther. So the question is, and we'll come back to this, we'll circle at the end, which one should be in our Bible? And I'll front load it, right? The Septuagint was the Bible of the early church after all. So, Nick, what say you? Yes, you're right. The Septuagint uh, was definitely very influential in the early church, but this tree has Hebrew roots. It was Hebrew which was read in synagogue, Hebrew which our Lord would have known, spoken, read, and the rest. And as we discussed in the Esther podcast, there's a case to be made for an early date of Hebrew Esther, a date which predates Greek Esther. The comparisons of additions C and D to Daniel 9 and, and Judith 9 uh, is actually argue for a later date for Greek Esther, uh, since those same scholars argue for a late date for uh, the book of Daniel, specifically chapter 7 through 12, and of course Judith, uh, 2nd century BC at the earliest. Uh, Reinhardt similarly argues in uh, in the uh, the commentary she wrote on Greek Esther, uh, she argues for what uh, you've pointed out: a Greek version of Esther based on a Hebrew original that is similar, but not identical to the Masoretic text. She also says that it is possible the Hebrew manuscript Greek Esther is based on postdates the Masoretic text although that cannot be determined with certainty. Uh, Furthermore, De Silva notes how there is near universal recognition that editions B and E were originally composed in Greek rather than translated from Hebrew, again, pushing their date later. Those are the edicts that were sent out. We'll cover that in a minute. Yeah, That's right. 
the death decree by Haman and then the, uh, hey, defend yourself decree in uh, uh, that, that Xerxes, well, Mordecai and Esther put out in Xerxes' name. Um, there's also the idea that uh, what we have in uh, Greek Esther is actually kind of a loose paraphrase of the Masoretic text. It's more of a verse-by-verse rather than a word-for-word translation. Um, it's what, kind of like the, the message of the uh, Second Temple era of Esther? Uh, that's a, a possibility as well. Two important things to consider. If the additions are removed, you still have a coherent story. Indeed, you have the, the Hebrew version of Esther. Uh, as De Silva notes, and here's the second thing, if somehow Greek Esther was the original and the Masoretic text is the later redacted version, just without the additions, one would anticipate that there would be extant literature citing the uproar of the desacralization of Esther. Uh, the, the Jewish people, they, they wouldn't take that sitting down. Uh, they, uh, you're removing, a, I mean, the most Jewish features have been removed, all the references to God and all the dietary restrictions and the strict adherence to Torah and all that. And the fact that you don't have Jewish people at least talking about that or mentioning it anywhere uh, kind of points to the fact that, that Hebrew Esther would have been the original Esther story. Uh, and you say? So I agree. The original Esther story is a Hebrew story, but it's not, in my view, the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is written in Hebrew, but it doesn't mean it's the original Hebrew story. That's the distinction between our difference. Uh, and it is a distinction with a difference <laughs> this time, <laughs> as opposed to without a difference. <laughs> so our Masoretic text is Hebrew but it's not necessarily the same Hebrew of the original Esther story. So that's the question. Which is closer to the original Esther story? Is it the Masoretic text, or is it the Greek Esther and the underlying Hebrew it would have been based off of? That's the question. And so I don't think we should see uh, Masoretic text Esther, which we have in our Bibles. I don't think we should see that as a redacted version of Greek Esther. I also don't think we should see Greek Esther as an expanded version of what we end up with in the Masoretic text. Uh, it implies that one of those versions is reacting to the other version. I don't think we have reactions going on between those two versions. Uh, it, it, that's why you don't have this, you know, extent literature about debates as to like why are you messing with Esther right it's because these are two entirely different traditional transmission lines of the story and so uh, they're not one responding to the other the Masoretic text Esther as we covered um, it's not perfectly coherent right it's like if you go with that as opposed to Septuagint Esther you don't eliminate problems you still have problems with the Masoretic text um, we, we argued in our coverage of Esther, as we have it in our Bibles, we argued for explanations for these incoherencies, these inconsistencies. At each turn, you can argue for that. But if you're looking at the Greek version, you can do the same thing. You can argue for explanations for these inconsistencies and incoherent, incoherent moments. 
We brought up several instances where the story seemed to contradict or even border on the unbelievable, which is why I offered as an option the notion that Esther should be seen as an inspired historical fiction, and that does solve a slew of difficulties, uh, whatever version you're talking about, the Masoretic text or the Greek text. So the Jews, when they later canonized their scriptures, right, we're talking, you know, anything from the Council of Jamnia onward, uh, the the scriptures for them, our Old Testament, uh, they didn't really care about the Greek versions of anything, to be honest with you. They had a hard and fast rule that only books they had with Hebrew copies could be canonized. In other words, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't care about the the desacralization of, of Esther if that's what Greek Esther was perceived to be, because uh, they were likely working from a different textual line of Esther anyway. And the Greek scriptures to the Jews who canonized their Old Testament, the Greek scriptures were already distasteful to them anyway. And also, you know, they were forming uh, their canon. A long time after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so you got to think, they're picking up the pieces of Judaism, right? This is the beginning of what will be called rabbinic Judaism. And so as they pick up those pieces, maybe they preferred a story of Esther where God is quietly in the subtext, not overtly mentioned or active, maybe that related better to their situation anyway, as they tried to pick up their own pieces and wonder if God was still there for them in the midst of destruction. So that's, that's my response. <laughs> so if I'm hearing you right, you're, you're speculating for a alpha text Hebrew version of Esther that predates the Masoretic text, and upon which the Septuagint uh, translation is based upon. When you say Alpha text, you're not referring to the Greek text no, from the I'm, medieval times, an right? Alpha, an Alpha text in Hebrew. A proto, a proto uh, Greek Masoretic text. Proto Masoretic yeah. text. It wouldn't be Masoretic because Masoretic refers to the Masoretes, uh, the Jewish you know scribes from the Middle Ages. Proto Esther, so, a proto yeah, proto Hebrew Esther that uh, the Greek translators were working with. So not an originally Greek which would com- have had right. then the additions, although they wouldn't have been additions; they would have been original to the Hebrew text, this Alpha Hebrew text. For the most part, I think, yeah, maybe not completely. Uh, there could have been some of the additions. Some of the additions in the Greek Esther could have been added late. They really could be true additions, but I think for, especially when we're talking about uh, sections A and F, um, uh, and I know that, you know, you're, you're, you'll you later argue that B and E are like totally Greek, you know, manufactured things. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I'm not totally persuaded by that uh, breakdown of, of the text. But yes, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that the Greek Esther has its own line of transmission and tradition that it was based off of some Hebrew original and that therefore the Greek Esther is going to be closer in its storyline to an original Hebrew story. And uh, and I think Josephus is going to back that up as well because Josephus is going to use a lot of stuff in Greek Esther that's not in what ends up in our Masoretic text. Okay. 
What kind of copies do we have for Greek <laughs> Esther? <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, Greek Esther is gathered from two main Greek sources. First, the Septuagint, as found in the major uncial codices like Codex Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, Sinaiticus. And the second Greek source is from a Greek text labeled the Alpha Text. And the copies of what we have from the Alpha Text um, are from the medieval period. David De Silva, he notes that uh, Josephus's telling of the story does reflect both Greek sources, uh, the Septuagint and the Alpha Text, uh, placing the original writing, in his opinion, of the Greek text to the 2nd and 3rd century BC. And uh, what do you think? Yeah, so Josephus, he does incorporate additions uh, B through E in his retelling of Esther. And this accords with the Old Latin, which is from the 2nd century I should say, is that B.C. or A.D.? It's got, it's got to be A.D. Yeah, I put the wrong thing there. Second century A.D., which is missing substantial portions of editions A and C. Not all of it, but substantial portions of both of those editions. And as mentioned, uh, editions B and E are Greek compositions, which similarly indicate their later date. And uh, probably originated in Alexandria in Egypt, while the remaining portions are from Palestine, though how such a conclusion is reached is not specified. That's uh, De Silva, uh, what he says in, in his book. But uh, that's, that's kind of the, uh, a bit about the, the copies. Anything else about Josephus? Yeah, I did want to mention that Josephus... I, I see in Josephus the incorporation of all the parts except for A and F. And uh, maybe that's because A and F was later added, or maybe he just didn't feel like telling that portion because it has to do with the apocalyptic um, you know, portions, and maybe he just didn't feel like explaining that in his uh, histories. Josephus, uh, he incorporates uh, parts of C. That's Antiquities uh, 11, uh, verse 230. 230 that corresponds with edition c verses five through seven um and he actually he does a really good job of summarizing the highlights of esther's prayer like elements in the prayer that he wouldn't have known from our masoretic text today because it doesn't have those elements and so he knew of what was in that prayer because he highlights each element in his retelling of the story so he definitely i think knows of edition c the content there and uh, Josephus, he practically incorporates all of Edition D, of what we call Edition D. That's in uh, Antiquities 11, verses 234 through 41. And so editions B, C, D, and E can all be seen in Josephus's retelling, which I think is a, a powerful uh, positive note for the Greek version. Uh, additionally, there is uh, a first century apostolic father named Clement of Rome. I, I think he's first century. There are some scholars who think he's second century. But I think he's at the end of the first century, Clement of Rome, and he knows about Esther's prayer. This is in First Clement 55, verse 6. And, um, and he knows not only of the prayer, but of some elements that we see both in uh, edition C, verse 23, and edition, two, uh, edition D, verse 2. And so um, I don't know if I have the quick... Oh, yeah, I do have it. So here's what First Clement says. 55.6, to no less danger did Esther, who was perfect in faith, expose herself in order that she might deliver the 12 tribes of Israel when 
they were about to be destroyed, for through her fasting and her humili- humiliation, she entreated the all-seeing master, the God, that uh, the God of the ages. And he, seeing the humility of her soul, rescued the people for whose sake she had faced danger. So that, that phrase, the all-seeing master, uh, the God of the ages, that reflects very specific things that Esther says in her prayer. Um, so you have Josephus, you have Clement of Rome, between those, you have B, C, D, and E, all accounted for by the end of the first century. And so maybe we should just summarize what's in these editions, right? Uh, edition A through F, and maybe, Nick, you can kick us off with edition A. Let's do it. Edition A, or uh, chapter 11, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 6. So Greek Esther begins with a dream. Uh, it's 485 B.C., there, and, and the dream sequence is... It's Mordecai's dream, and he sees double dragons. Right? His dream, and he sees double dragons. <laughs> right, double dragon. All right, red and uh, blue. That's in a terrific scene of chaos. The two dragons come out to fight one another, while the surrounding nations prepare for war against the righteous nation. And when the chaos is at its crescendo, a great river starts flowing, and light shines in the darkness. So the humble are exalted, and the proud are actually destroyed. Mordecai awakens from this dream, which details what God has determined to do, though Mordecai doesn't understand exactly what it means. Well, one day, Mordecai is resting in the courtyard when he hears an assassination plot. Two of the king's eunuchs are planning to kill the king. And so he reports this to the king, who investigates and finds the plot to be true. He executes the two eunuchs, uh, Gabatha and Thara are their names, and Mordecai's deed is recorded, and he is rewarded by being asked to serve in the king's court. Meanwhile, Haman, the Bougian, is watching all this, and he determines to hurt Mordecai. But how? Hmm. More next time. (laughs) well nick first question for section a what similarities do you see in this vision to other apocalyptic imagery we have in the bible yeah one that stood out to me was in uh 11 8 uh it was a day of darkness and gloom of tribulation and distress affliction and great tumult on the earth and that really reminded me of uh, Zephaniah 1 and verse 15. We've covered Zephaniah before, but he's got that. It's a day of this and a day of that, a day of day of day of day, day of darkness, day of and all that. Um, and also it's it's somewhat comparable to uh, what Joel talks about in Joel 2, too. It does a similar thing. It's a day of this and a day of. And so uh, that was one connection I made, the dragon motif where a dragon is, is defeated, that's, that's found in Isaiah 27, uh, verse 1. But the, the double dragon concept, and which characterizes both good and evil, that's, that's kind of novel to uh, Esther here. So uh, those are some similarities I found. What did you find? Uh, in addition to what you mentioned, dragon imagery also appears in all of the passages that mention Leviathan. And that'd be a good uh, featured creature is Leviathan. Maybe we'll do that sometime. 
But uh, Isaiah 27.1, you mentioned, that's talking about Leviathan. That's a sea dragon. It's mentioned in Job 3.8, Psalm 74.14, Yahweh crushed the heads of Leviathan when he split the Red Sea for the Israelites to cross. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 26. There's also a dragon named Rahab in Isaiah 51, verse 9. And examples abound even more in the Septuagint. And some notable examples being... um, Usually when we see in our Old Testament the word sea monster, um, it's translated as dragon in the Septuagint, like in Psalm 148, verse 7. Also, though uh, possibly related more to the dream, Nebuchadnezzar, he's called a dragon in Jeremiah 28, 34. Pharaoh is called a dragon in Ezekiel 29, verse 3. And those last two examples would probably be the foundation for interpreting dragons as being people in Mordecai's dream. Now, of course, it is the book of Revelation in our New Testament that sounded most like Mordecai's dream to me. And so both books uh, contain dragons. Both mention the nations warring against God's people. Both mention thunders and earthquake. Both mention a life-giving river of water and light. Both have a climax of God's people being saved just in time before they're destroyed. And both mention their enemies being devoured. So, a lot of a lot of things in Revelation that are similar to Mordecai's uh, apocalyptic dream vision. So next question, Nick. In that vision, there are the humble people of God who rise up to eat or devour the honorable people who were going to attack them. Is this is this supposed to be cannibalism? This is in addition a verse ten. What do you think? And so this is a, this is a figure. Uh, and it's a figure for utter destruction. Uh, in fact, elsewhere in the Septuagint, that word is used in order to talk about uh, utter destruction. It's not unlike what happens to Korah's rebellious group in Numbers 16 and verse 35. Uh, there the, the Septuagint talks about how the fire devoured them. So it's a figure of, of utter destruction. Uh, what do you say? Yeah, I was a little taken back by the uh, by the figure, by the image. Um, usually there's some object in the Old Testament that does the devouring whenever this word occurs, like a plague devours, a locust devours, a mildew devours, fire devours. When it's warfare, it's the sword that devours. Uh, it's a little less common to see the phrase when the object devouring somebody is another person. Uh, that image is graphic. It's graphic for a reason. Um, this happens in... Isaiah 9, verse 12, where it says Syria and the Greeks will devour Israel with their whole mouth. So, like, very explicit, you know, making you think of cannibalism. It's not in that case, but um, you see the similar thing in Jeremiah 5, verse 17, 10, verse 25. The important part seems to be that, yeah, it's a dream, right? It's a dream full of imagery. It's a vision. You have things like dragons, uh, and I think... The idea of the humble devouring the honorable in combination with the battling dragons, the double dragons, I think that was intended to bring the reader's mind back to Moses and his confrontation with Pharaoh in the Exodus, right? Where Moses, he throws down his staff and it turns into a serpent. Um, There's a close, you know, relation between the word used for serpent. Sometimes it's used for serpent. Sometimes it's used for dragon. So Moses's staff turns into a serpent. Uh, Pharaoh's magician, they perform the same power. They throw down a staff and it turns into a serpent and the two serpents do battle. But 
their serpent, the magician's serpent, is eaten by Moses' serpent, right? Yahweh wins. So Moses picks up the serpent and turns back into a staff. I think that's probably the connection that we're supposed to see with the two dragons fighting. It goes back to the two serpents fighting uh, and how Yahweh wins. But um, we have another strange thing in edition A, uh, a a bougion, a, a bougion. What in the world? Okay, what is a bougion? Sounds like boogeyman. Yeah. And why is there no mention of Haman being an Amalekite or an Agagite? This is in uh, verse 17 of edition A. Yeah, or 12.6 if you're working with the chapter divisions and all that. Um, yeah, that, that's weird, right? Boogeyman, Bougine, Bougian, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, most consider this just a sloppy handling of the Hebrew, which reads Agagite. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, a mistranslation, that's, that's what I found. What would you find? I think that's likely right. Uh, we have probably some scribal error going on here. Uh, it, you know, there was pro- again, if this was a Greek translator taking it from a Hebrew text into Greek, there was probably some sort of confusion for what this Greek person was reading from the Hebrew, and so it, he transliterates it into a, a, some sloppy, like nonsensical Greek, like pronunciation, uh, and, and it doesn't mean anything. There, there's no such thing as a bugayon. Um, Bugayan is mentioned in edition A, verse 17, but within the, the Greek chapters of Esther, verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 10, he is called a bugayos, right? You have the, the sigma ending, the S at the end instead of the N. And so that one letter difference, to me, that continues to show that there must have been some sort of textual transmission problem, some sort of translation problem going on. Um, so I just thought I'd throw that out there in case people are wondering if they read this, what in the world is the, the boogeyman doing in, in Esther? So uh, I thought you were going to go with the, you know, there's a different manuscript tradition, so different Hebrew word or something. Hmm. No, I think you're misunderstanding, Nick. <laughs> I, I think I understand perfectly. No. Um, well, tell us, talk to us about edition B, Alex, uh, 13, 1 through 7. Okay. Edition B, this section describes itself as the actual letter sent out to the entire Persian kingdom in the name of King Artaxerxes the Great. So the letter prefaces the decree by announcing the king's continual desire and kind efforts to maintain peace and order throughout the kingdom. The goal of peace and unity, however, cannot be achieved because a particularly hostile people seems to be mixed in throughout the empire. These people are enemies of the state. They're enemies of government stability. They are enemies of the common man and his way of life. They are heterosexual, patriarchal, anti-masking, anti-vaxxing, anti-science, climate-denying, religious zealots. They're a danger to the health of all people and therefore need to be eradicated in a single day. And this people, every man, every woman, every child, is to be executed without pity. And only then Will things go back to normal, and our good king can establish peace over his kingdom? Added anachronisms for your entertainment. <laughs> so, Nick, edition B, section B. Here's a question for you. This letter, right, the, the details of the edict that we get in the Greek version, what methods of persuasion slash manipulation does this letter use to convince the populace of cooperating with this plan of genocide? 
Yeah, this is a it's a good question because it's a, this is a government sanctioned thing, right? And uh, uh, well, we had a we had a defector from the KGB uh, decades ago. Uh, in fact, he's he's highlighted in the new uh, Call of Duty trailer, and he talks about <laughs> he talks about the what the four stages. You know, you have destabilization of a country, and then that's followed by demoralization. And then you have your crisis event, whereby you can do your hostile takeover, and and finally you have your normalization as you enter into the new normal after. So, and that's by the way, not only instructive to kind of what we're seeing here with the the Haman plot, but uh, and and also as part of the story later on, as we'll see with the plot twist. But uh, it's also instructive for us today because man, there's a lot of. Very interesting things going on on the contemporary scene. I digress. No, it doesn't apply to today, Nick. Come on. Yeah. Uh, for me, I see one really glaring thing, nationalistic xenophobia. And uh, although you did the, acro- the anachronistic thing, uh, it, it, uh, it is indicative of what Haman is doing. He is targeting a people, a race of people. They are disturbing the national security. And in order to preserve national stability, we got to eradicate them. We got to get rid of them. And uh, and so, yeah, nationalistic xenophobia really stands out for me. What did you see? Yeah, it seems like uh, similar. So I'll probably word it a little differently, but similar to what you described from the uh, KGB defector, you have... Uh, one method is, is first you fabricate a problem, right? So the Jews, they're destroying our kingdom. Uh, you know, it's not like your king is wasting time and money on a six-month-long party or constantly drinking with Haman or holding a year-long harem contest. We're going on the contrary, yeah. yeah, we're working tires, tirelessly to secure peace in the kingdom. Uh, but you, you have no peace or calm until this problem is solved, right? So you fabricate the problem. Are the Jews really a problem in there? No, no, but they, right? Haman is angry at Mordecai, though. He wants all Jews to die. So he's fabricating this problem that is Haman's problem, but he words it so that it becomes the nation's problem, the empire's problem. So that's the first thing, fabricate a problem. Uh, Create a defensible image. This is another technique here for manipulation, right? It says we are administering blamelessly. We're not wanting to be arrogant. We prefer to act with kindness and consideration, right? So you you put up the, the defense right away so that any critique can be deflected. Any criticism can be deflected. So that's another manipulation technique. Um, Another thing is uh, a manipulation technique is you keep the problem, whatever it is you fabricated, keep it vague, right? Avoid specifics. Um, it says these people, they're among us, but they're against us. Doesn't say how, doesn't say what they're doing. It says they threaten our stability as a kingdom. Doesn't say how, just says they are. They're corrupt, etc. that kind of thing, you know, sort of this... Uh, thing which is like there's there's no justice there's corruption you know th- these are very vague non-specific things that don't quite dig into the specifics because then the the problem the fabricated problem would fall apart if you dig into the specifics so keep it vague keep it vague the other manipulation uh 
tactic is you, you have to anticipate the reaction, right? So if the Jews react violently, it validates the problem already fabricated, right? See, they are. They are here among us trying to destroy us. If the Jews react passively, it implies their guilt, right? Uh, see, see, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they speak up if this was if this didn't have any basis in reality? And that allows for the growing suspicion to to grow against them in the empire, for that to build and build over the coming months. It's interesting how this was this was planned months ahead of time. It wasn't like we're going to eradicate them next week. It was we're eradicating them in about a year from now. So it allows time to pass. And so as the authorities prepare to oversee the Jewish annihilation, the the posture of the authoritative figures, that allows for the shocking news to become normalized, to become rationalized by the public so that they won't pity the Jew. And then, of course, you propose a solution. The proposal is not really a suggestion. It's rather just the inevitable outcome that the people must believe will happen. And that outcome is there will be no peace or stability until the Jews are eradicated. So don't pity them. Wipe them out quickly. And that's... uh, that's really a, a, a well-crafted, deceptive letter that Heyman put together there. <laughs> yeah, and that's you know that's a whole lot of nonsense that has absolutely nothing to do with today. Nothing to see here. No, nope, um, no. Nope. This is the ancient world. We don't do this anymore. Thanks for that needless excursion, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> that's my job. Yeah, <laughs> needless excursions. It is. It, it is super spooky. the The more things change. The more they stay the same, right? The, yeah. <laughs> the tactics then are no different than the tactics now. So, That's right. I digress. Oh, all right, Nick. Why don't you summarize for us the contents of Edition C? All right. Prayer time. Uh, first, Mordecai prays a prayer, and it, he accentuates the sovereignty of God. God is the king who rules over all things. And everything is in his power. Mordecai calls upon God as the all-knowing creator to save Israel. He admits th- that the present crisis is due to his refusal to kneel before Haman, but that was because he, w- he would only kneel before the Lord God. So Mordecai begs God to spare Israel. And, and all the people also, while Mordecai is praying, all the other people, they're crying out to God in prayer as well. Meanwhile... Esther is desperately anxious, wringing her hands with anxiety. She takes off her queenly garments and puts on the garments of sorrow. She refuses her perfumes. Instead, she chooses to put ashes and poop in her hair. (laughs) Thoroughly humbled, she prays to God. Like Mordecai, she accentuates the universal reign of God as king. Her prayer, which is about twice as long as Mordecai's, channels Deuteronomy, recounting that obedience would bring blessing, but disobedience has brought exile and the present crisis. She prays that words would be given her. As she prepares to go before Xerxes, she admits that she's hated the royal luxuries afforded her, including eating at Haman's table and sleeping in his bed. Her rule as queen has been joyless. And God knows this. Save us and save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, all right, maybe, maybe not that last part, but that's edition C, which is also 13, 8 through 14, 19. Does it make me immature that I laughed when you said the word poop? 
<laughs> it is. It, it's kind of out of nowhere, but. Well, uh, we do have a few questions for this for this section, section C. Nick, what reason does Mordecai give in his prayer for God to save them? God is Lord, King, Sovereign, Creator. He's Savior. And all of this, uh, coupled with what we saw back in edition A at 11, uh, verse 2, what God had determined to do, that phrase there, all this reveals strong overtones of divine sovereignty. And this is a theme which is echoed in Esther's prayer as well, 14 verse 15, you have knowledge of all things. And so divine foreknowledge and divine foreordination, these are strong themes in Greek Esther. In addition, you have a petition for divine mercy. Be merciful is what the... uh, uh, Lexum English Septuagint, is that the alias? What it Uh reads there, have mercy, is what the New Revised Standard says. Uh, And uh, it's also translated, uh, or can be uh, translated, be propitious. Uh, The Greek term there uh, related to the Greek term, or uh, it may even be the Greek term for propitiation, Mm. that big Bible word that shows up later in the New Testament for what Christ did on the cross for us. But Interesting. uh, yeah, so those are uh, some of the reasons that uh, uh, Mordecai gave for God to save them. What would you find? Yeah, you know, like we saw in our episode on the apocryphal uh, letter, the prayer of Manasseh, there is, along with Mordecai's prayer, the promise that he, as the one being saved by God and, and all of God's people, that they would then, after being saved, live on to sing the praises of Yahweh. And by singing the praises of Yahweh, by singing of his salvation, the glory of God can begin to spread over the earth. And he presents that as like a motivating factor for why God should act on their behalf. Uh, This is not unlike what we see when Moses intercedes and gets God to change his mind about destroying the Israelites and starting over with Moses after the golden calf incident. He says, what about your reputation? What about how you're known among all the nations? Um, He persuades God to act. Both Mordecai in uh, verses 8 through 9, section C, and Esther, verse 16 of section C, they also appeal to God by framing Israel as God's inheritance. Um, This will come back into the picture again at the towards the end of the book where uh, you have these uh, language of lots being spoken of in terms of Israel being God's lot, his inheritance. This idea goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, uh, and Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 through 9, where Yahweh has given the nations over to the sun and the moon and the stars. That's the other gods. But he has created a nation for himself from Abraham, and that's Israel. That's his inheritance. Um and that, that theme is strongly within uh, Greek Esther. Now, uh, everybody wants to know, Nick, this is, this is really what's on people's mind. Why does Esther put poop in her hair? I mean, <laughs> was, was that common? Is what's going on here? Hard-hitting questions here on Sword. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. No softballs. Uh, I believe... First of all, there's there's uh, there may be a divergence here in the two text traditions, uh, at least in, in the Greek. 
the uh, Septuagint, and then the Alpha text uh, that we talked about earlier. Um, distinct from Proto-Hebrew Esther, but that's a different... <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, the Alpha text reads, she filled her braided hair with humiliation. Just kind of a, a general, broad statement. And it's the Septuagint that notes the ashes and the dung. And I, I can't speak to the commonality of the practice, but if anything evidences self-humiliation, I think it would be putting poop in your hair. You just you're, that's a whole other level of degradation. Um, so uh, that's that's the best I got. What, what do you think, Alex? Yeah, that's pretty gross. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ashes and sackcloth always seemed sufficient right? in all the other examples of biblical emergencies. So uh, poop in the hair—it's it's over the top, man. It's over the top. It kind of reminds me of when God tells Ezekiel to cook his bread over human poop. And Ezekiel's like, no, please don't make me do that. <laughs> and he begs. He begs for a different way. And, and Yahweh says, okay, fine, Ezekiel, you can use cow poop instead. Ezekiel's like, thank you for not making me use human poop. So, <laughs> Nestor's like, forget it. I'll use my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so gross. Uh. All right. Uh, moving on now. I don't know how to recover from that. How if, about this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so on the other end of the spectrum, these are very rich prayers. Mordecai and Esther are praying. But here's the thing, Alex. If God had already determined or planned what he was going to do back in edition A, verse 11, or 11, verse 12, and his sovereign control is recognized by Mordecai and Esther in their prayers, then then why pray? What's the point in praying? Yeah, I mean that's that's a not only a question for Greek Esther, right? It's a question for the Christian today. Uh, we I've heard many Christians, and I've thought it myself too. If if everything's already foreknown and or foreordained in the mind of God, then then why do we pray? What difference does it make? And, you know, people go in the direction of like, well, because it's obedience, you know, he says to do it, so it must be good for you. It's just like, uh, that's, you know, I think that's actually a hindrance to prayer. I think we have a, in my view, there has been a misunderstanding about God's foreknowledge and foreordination. And this is one of those presuppositional problems that makes things more complicated than they need to be. For me, the answer is simple. God can change his mind. Right? His, prom his promises, his purposes, they are at times conditional. Sometimes not. Sometimes God does have an event in mind, a goal intended that he will bring about no matter what, one way or another. But the path to get there is open. Uh, it is fluid. The exact means by which he'll do what he is intent on doing can change depending on how people respond to the unfolding events. Uh, I think that applies to these visions as well, right? Is Esther going to be the river of life, the light that shines in just before uh, Israel's salvation? Or is, is something else going to be that river of life and light? Uh, that's what Mordecai says in 4.14, right? Even in the Greek Esther version, 4.14 still has... Mordecai saying the same thing as our Masoretic text that, uh, hey, Esther, if you don't respond, 
then another source of salvation will arise for the Jews. So, so it's presenting Mordecai in his conviction that, yeah, salvation is inevitable. It is coming. That's a settled thing. But the means through which it arises, uh, that's fluid. That could be you, Esther. It should be you. But will you, will you be used by God? Will you go along with it? Will you act uh, for Israel's salvation? If not, something else will come along. Maybe you won't be the river then. Something else will be. What are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, that's, that's right. But the issue is that God had determined. He'd, he'd planned this. There was a blueprint, if you will, and he'd revealed it in a dream, what, what he was going to do. It was fixed from edition A that the events were going to go down the way that they went down. And I think your explanation maybe works for like Hebrew Esther with its innuendos and implications and all that. But the sovereignty theme in Greek Esther is so strong. I mean, we almost need a reform guy to, to help us out. R.C., R.C., come over here. Oh, yeah, here we go. R.C. Sproul is here to explain this, uh, that reformed, dogmatic guy. And this is what he says in his book, Does Prayer Change Things? And I quote, The sovereign God commands by his holy word that we pray. Prayer is not optional for the Christian. It is required. Prayer, like everything else in the Christian life, is for God's glory and for our benefit in that order. Everything that God does, everything that God allows and ordains, is in the supreme sense of his glory. It is also true that while God seeks his own glory supremely, man benefits when God is glorified. We pray to glorify God, but we also pray in order to receive the benefits of prayer from his hand. Prayer is for our benefit, even in light of the fact that God knows the end from the beginning. It is our privilege to bring the whole of our finite existence into the glory of his infinite presence. So there you go. <laughs> Take it as yeah, you leave it. Yeah, leave it to a Reformed guy to uh, uh, say lots and lots of words without saying anything at all. It doesn't it get is... much more uh, Calvinistic than, than old R.C.'s, although he does redo the <laughs> tulip and it becomes like Riz Dip or something. But Yeah. Listen, I'm not a Reformed guy. You know, I... I no, I know. Really, really don't like. <laughs> most, you just revealed. Most you revealed theology. the open theist that you are. Yeah, being being the open theist that I am, <laughs> there's a lot of assumptions going on here. You know, we're assuming that the vision that Mordecai has represents every single detail that will unfold, and it doesn't. It doesn't. It represents. Uh, it's actually it's it's quite vague. Each thing represents a determined signpost in the road but it doesn't determine who that signpost ends up being and how one gets from signpost to signpost and so um yeah there are there are things determined by god but to speak of it as a blueprint in terms of like every single minute step is already planned by god i don't see that as the uh picture we get in scripture the picture we get in scripture is that God works with and around his human agencies and their free will, which reflects his own image of being a free-willed being. And so, uh, and this makes sense out of prayer. Why, when we pray, it changes things, right? When Jesus said, pray that uh, this will not happen, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, in the wintertime, it'll be hard for nursing mothers and women uh, to take care of their children in the wintertime. So your prayer, whether or not you pray, 
does change the timing of events that Jesus says will happen. Uh, your prayers do have the ability to change God's mind. God changes his mind, folks. It happens. You have to do some mental gymnastics to get around the verses that say that. But if you just let it be what it is, he changes his mind. It happens. And Well, uh, and, and that's where yeah. uh, that's where R.C. would disagree, that it's not you don't change God's mind. The mind of God does not change because God doesn't change. But where he agrees with you is things change. And they change according to a sovereign will, which he exercises through secondary means and secondary activities. The prayer of his people is one of the means he uses to bring things to pass in this world. So if you ask me whether prayer changes things, I answer with an unhesitating yes. But to the question, does, can you change God's mind, it's a definitive no for R.C. Right, but R.C.'s problem is the presupposition that the verse about God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow when he's quoting from Hebrews. The problem with that is that he's assuming that uh, that's in reference to a detailed, predestined, step-by-step, unfolding event after event after event, word after word for all of history when that's not what that verse is hinting at. Even close, not at all. The character of God, who he is, does not change. His character is the same forever, which is why he's reliable in who we trust him to be regarding truth and morals and salvation and uh, what he desires. That does not change. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't uh, change his mind in regards to certain events. I mean, just think about the Exodus. When the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they are going the shortest route, and it says point blank that God has them go around to a different, longer route because he was afraid that the Israelites might change their mind and turn back to Egypt. That is not the thinking or statement of a God who never changes his mind. That is the statement of a God who is actively working back and forth with the response of his people and himself in time, real time. So So R.C. would say, that's right— and there are instances where the Bible talks about, well, God repents, right? But he says that that is anthropomorphic language. Mental uh, gymnastics, that's what he does. <laughs> well, no, is. it's it, obviously the Bible does not mean that God repented in, in the way that we repent. Otherwise, we could rightly assume that God had sinned and therefore would need a Savior himself. That's what another presuppositional that, problem. Repentance doesn't always have to mean sin. Repentance is a changing of one's mind. It can be in the context of sin. You have changed your mind from doing what is wrong to doing what is right. But changing one's mind doesn't inherently mean that you thus sinned. And that's that's the other presuppositional problem. So, yeah, God changes his mind. He works in real time with us. He, he does things that are, are conditional to see what our response will be. And uh, this is this is fundamental to prayer. Like this is why RC can explain until his face turns blue that we should pray and that it's important and that it makes a difference. But when he at the end of the day gives you the bottom line and says, "But it changes nothing in God's mind," that takes all the wind out of the sails of the Christian who is trying to pray. He's trying to navigate the waters of prayer. And this predestination thing, this reformed thing, it steals the wind out of the sails of the Christian in the waters of prayer. You just don't have the 
oomph. You don't have the motivation, the incentive to do it, and you struggle with it because at the end of the day, you know it changes nothing. And that is theologically uh, wrong, and it's spiritually destructive. So there are some serious implications for the Christian's prayer life. And you have to, he, he like everybody else in that Reformed thing, you have to now hold this cognitive dissonance in your mind, this cognitive dissonance that you know these two things that you believe to be true uh, are true at the same time, even though it doesn't make sense that they're true at the same time. God, God's plan, predestination, foreknowledge of everything that will ever happen doesn't ever change, but your prayer changes things. It's just like, those can't be true at the same time, no matter how much you want to mentally do gymnastics. That's my answer to R.C. Sproul. <laughs> so. On the other hand, I think the what again what uh, Sproul the, the thing that I appreciate about the um, the reform position is that they have a very robust view of the sovereignty of God, and I think you lose some of that from an open theistic position. You lose a lot of it, actually. And and so, on the other hand, I think it is very comforting to know that um, not a single molecule is outside of the sovereign control and the sovereign will of God, that nothing escapes God. Uh, nothing can go beyond his boundaries, uh, of, uh, the, the boundaries of his power. And that, uh, you know, we, we can have confidence in the future because we uh, believe in the God who is in control of, of uh, history. And even in control of our, so this is the family secret of Romans 8, right? Uh, that, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And whether that's in this life or the next, I mean, God God is exercising his sovereign will in order to bring about good in my life because I love him. And so I think, but, yeah, go ahead. But that doesn't presuppose that God predetermined or foreknew all the things that would happen in your life. That's the problem. That's the crux of the issue. Well, then how, does, that, how, does, how does foreknowledge come in, right? And how does predestination come in? Well, that's another topic where we're talking about the predestination <laughs> of God's, um, uh, you know, plan of salvation, right? Who is he? Who has he predestined to be saved? And it's always in the context of a corporate setting, right? And so, without getting into uh, corporate election and the 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 whole ball of wax there, the the thing is, is that you have things that. God did not want to happen, right? And you end up in the reform camp with this uh, bottom line notion that what we see in the world, all the evil, all its problems, uh, the darkest things, we are seeing the best of all possible universes. And that's, that's, to me, you are, you are at such a level of sophistry at that point that like you've really stepped away from letting the scriptures speak where the scriptures speak okay when you're saying like this what we have here is the best of all possible universes god saw all the infinite possibilities in the universe and he chose the one which was best and so yeah the world's evil yeah people do evil things there are dark things but it, it is the best 
set of dark things that could have happened uh, in consideration of all possibilities, all universes. And to me, that man, that is so destructive because you're telling the innocent child who gets raped and molested that this was in the foreknowledge and predestined plan of God, and that is sinful. That is sinful. And that's why I say there is a cognitive dissonance in this position where you hold that on one hand, everything is foreknown, and or predestined and on the other hand your prayers make a difference and you have this illusion or actuality of free will in which you can act it doesn't both work at the same time it is cognitive dissonance and that's my that's my rant well I'll stop i'll as, stop as well i'll you you can have the final word if you want in that the worst conceivable evil the worst conceivable evil is god on the cross and that's that's what you have in our universe. There is nothing more conceivably evil than that. In fact, it assumes all the evil in our universe in that one moment in history, right? And yet, that was a part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why don't you sum up addition D? <laughs> <laughs> 15 verses 1 yeah. through 16. And yeah, back thanks, to Greek Esther. Thanks for that improv, improv after hours. <laughs> so edition D of Esther is full, I think, at least at the beginning, of messianic overtones. This section opens up by stating that on the third day, Esther took off her garments of service and put on her glorious clothes. And that, by the way, is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, his own death, burial, and resurrection, having put on human garments of service, laying those down, and then in his resurrection, picking up his glorious garments of, uh, of resurrection. It's, it's on the third day, no less, right? It's very, very interesting. And unlike the anticlimactic version that we have in the Masoretic text, that it does this build up to it's going to be dangerous to go in front of the king and then she walks in gets the scepter and moves on <laughs> it's like come on really in the greek this epic scene of esther entering the king's presence is the peak of the greek version of this story the added details show how esther was in a delicate state she needed to lean on her servant to walk while another servant carried her train that, though she seemed radiant and beautiful like a flower on the outside, inside she was full of fear and anxiety. And this is, this is really in the text, right? It says this. And when Esther enters Artaxerxes' court, she sees him covered in splendor with gold and adornment, and he catches sight of her entering. And his face turns from stern and starts to, to wrinkle and grow into an expression of outright anger and rage. And she knew from that one look that she was in trouble. And the mere thought of that, it makes her faint. And so upon her fainting, though, it says that on the spot, God changes Artaxerxes' heart. And now he is kind he is gentle he is rushing to her aid he extends to her the royal scepter of pardon and he begs for her to be strengthened he says don't worry esther the ordinance of coming into my presence that's only for the public it's not for you my dear 
So she comes to, just for a moment, to say that she fainted from seeing his glory, the glory of that like an angel. And then she passes out again, while the royal servants rush to comfort her. And that's edition D. It's quite the scene, quite the scene. Indeed. Uh, You know, there are some overtones I mentioned there at the beginning. What kind of other overtones might we see in Esther's um, description here, especially when she is being described in uh, verse 2 of section D as being resplendent? Yeah, so the the New Revised Standard says uh, she adorned herself majestically. And so on the one hand, she humbled herself and dressed as needed in order to address the king of the cosmos, right? And then on the other hand, she dressed herself in order to appear before an earthly king. And it really is kingdoms in contrast, right? The king of the cosmos, how do you approach him? With humility and, um, you know, she's got all the the trappings of humiliation that go along with that. Whereas, how do you approach an earthly king? Well, you got to get all dressed up and all that. That's why the uh, that's why that whole argument about, you know, well, you got to give God your best, and so that means you have to dress up every Sunday in a suit and tie has always kind of rung hollow with me because it's like, yeah, I know I'm approaching the king of the cosmos, but first of all, we have all these examples where it's actually humiliation, not getting your resplendent garments, right? Your finery, as Alexander Campbell talks about it. But then also, you know what? The, the king is my father, and... Uh, Alex, I don't know about you, but for me, I never had to get in a suit and tie to go talk to my dad, right? Um, and so, uh, again, kingdoms in contrast. And kind of what what we value as kingdom people, I think, is seen in Esther here uh, and, and all those overtones with uh, humiliation on the one hand and now the, the majestic appearance she has to put on in order to come before the king. That's what I saw. What did you think? Uh well, the, the Greek word for there in the Septuagint for resplendent is epiphanes, which is where we get our word epiphany. It's used to describe an appearing of light. And it's usually in the Septuagint, it's in reference to God. Uh, but here, it's in reference to Esther. And I think that's intentional. This description, it ties in the prophetic vision that we see in edition A, where it is the river and light that comes in to save the people. Uh, it's subsequent interpretation in addition F that we'll get to in just a moment. That river and light that came in to rescue the humble, uh, that's going to be interpreted as Esther. That's her. And so this scene in addition D, this shining of Esther, I think it emphasizes that God was saving his people, but he was working through Esther to accomplish that end as the river and the light coming in to to save the humble. So should Esther's comparison of Artaxerxes, where she says he is like an angel, his his glory like an angel, Nick, do you think that should be considered blasphemous or was she lying, right? Was she just uh, manipulating him? And if so, was that righteous deception? What do you think? Well, there, there is biblical precedent for these, this kind of declaration. Uh, Achish uh, says something similar of David over in 1 Samuel chapter 29 and verse 9. Also, uh, Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 19 and verse 27. They both refer to David as an angel of God. And so it could be that this is uh, 
kind of Esther's way of describing the king's majesty or perhaps his power, like David. David, who was able to do what seems good to you, uh, as uh, I think it was Mephibosheth that said that uh, after calling him an angel of God. So uh, could be what's going on here. What do you think? You know, except we already know from Esther's prayer that she loathes her marriage to the king. She loathes her position as queen. And so it seems it seems to me that she wouldn't be genuinely, like, complimenting him, flattering him. I think she's saying these things to butter him up for her request, right? She's, she's trying to use whatever words will uh, put her in the best position to save her people. And I, so I would call that righteous deception, righteous deception. There is a biblical precedent for righteous deception. It applies to when one is trying to save innocent people from being killed by evil people. And here's some prominent examples, right? The Egyptian midwives who lie to Pharaoh, who say, Pharaoh, we couldn't kill the Israelite baby boys because the Israelite women, they are really fast at labor and delivery. You know, by the time we get there, the, the baby's already there. So we can't really do the uh, the infantile genocide you've requested of us. Of course, they were lying. They were deceiving him. And what does Yahweh think about that? It says specifically that he blesses them for it. He establishes their house. So another example would be Rahab, right? Rahab lies to the soldiers of Jericho saying uh, the spies went that away when actually the Israelite spies were hiding in her attic. And what does God think about that deception? He allows her to become a part of Israel in the line of Christ, no less. Uh, Samuel, when he is going off to Bethlehem to anoint David, to anoint a new king, uh, Saul, he uh, obviously is on the lookout for whoever this new anointed person might be. And Samuel says to, to, to God, uh, what do I tell Saul? And he says, oh, just tell Saul you're going to Bethlehem for, for a sacrifice, for a feast. And so uh, that's true, but it's not the whole truth, is it? He leaves out the part about going to anoint someone. And so there is broad precedent in the Old Testament for righteous deception. And I think that's what we have here with Esther and Artaxerxes. So, Nick, Section E, Edition E, Greek Esther. You want to summarize that for us? Yeah, 16, 1 through 24. Again, if you're following along with those chapters and verses. And this is a section that purports to be a copy of the decree that's issued by Xerxes, countering the previous decree that's recorded in Edition B we looked at earlier. Par for the course, references to God abound. The decree begins with a diatribe against those proud conspirators who think, they're escaping the all-seeing, evil-hating justice of God. Sometimes these wicked tricksters also dupe others to engage in their bloodshed, but we can do better, and we will do better, and we have hope and change on our side. I don't know. Anyway, Haman the Macedonian, plot twist, while enjoying the goodwill <laughs> of the empire, tried to overthrow the Persian Empire, also targeting Mordecai and Esther. But the Jewish people are children of God, who directs the Persian Empire for everyone's good. And therefore, 
Do not follow through on Haman's previous order and post this letter prominently so everyone can read it. Also, give the Jewish people backup so they can defend themselves. In fact, you know what? Let's have a party instead of violence, commemorating this as a day to remember not to cross the Persians. And if you don't do what I say, I will burn your city to the ground and I will salt the earth. Okay, bye. <laughs> Alex, talk for a minute about this decree. Who, who wrote this decree? The king? Was it Esther? Was it Mordecai? Was it all the above? Well, I highly doubt Artaxerxes had any input in this letter other than him handing over his signet ring for Esther to write as she pleases. I mean, that's what it says chapter 8, verse 8. Uh, and that's what he did with Haman, right? He didn't write the letter, uh, the edict, the decree to annihilate the Jews. Haman wrote that letter, but it was written in the king's name. So here it is. We have either Esther uh, handing over the writing to Mordecai, or they both collaborated on the letter together. Uh, this would explain a few things. It would explain why Artaxerxes, all of a sudden in this letter, sounds like a Jewish convert. Uh <laughs> He's not. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not him writing. It's just his authority to write in his name uh, being done by Esther or Mordecai or, or both. Side note, should that be incorporated into our theology of what qualifies as an inspired writer, right? One who writes in the name and authority of God, but the content of the writing being what seemed best to the writer. So would God let a human yield such power? Would God share his sovereignty with those whom he appointed um, worthy? So that's uh, an interesting question. We don't necessarily have to uh, go into that, but Nick, you have any thoughts? Uh, no. <laughs> you don't want to add another hour to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could, but... <laughs> yeah, I feel another, I feel another uh, monologue about God's sovereignty coming on. So... <laughs> so let's let's hold that for another episode we got some after hour episodes coming out anyway so why nick do you think Haman is referred to here as a macedonian um i mean it what what is it saying the truth is behind Haman's hidden motivation now plot twist that's seems to be what's going on <laughs> in the in the overall story here uh, according to greek esther Haman was masquerading as a Bougian, as so the boogeyman was a Macedonian the whole time. He was really <laughs> a deep cover Macedonian operative working in the Persian Empire deep state in an attempt to overthrow the government. And so there I'm channeling my deepest conspiracy theory ideas there. But anyway, <laughs> by the way, where Haman fails, Alexander the Great a Macedonian, will succeed in 333 B.C. And this could be a, a kind of a historical allusion to that. Uh, but that seems to be kind of what's going on here uh, from my perspective. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I think it could definitely be an historical illusion. Again, I I feel like on the table is the idea that this is a, a, a inspired historical fiction, whether you're, you're going with the Masoretic text or the Greek text. Uh, and so it reminds me of what I said in the previous episodes about the pressure that would have been felt by the Jews under Greek rule, Macedonian rule, during the process of Hellenization, right? Where everybody needs to be Greek in every way. So how Greek can a Jew look and act before he is no longer a Jew? And so turning the bad guy, Haman, 
into a Greek Macedonian. Kind of fits nicely into that theory. Um, Don't let Haman win, right? Hellenization is actually aimed at the secret destruction of the Jews. I think this version of the story would have been more popular uh, in that day and time for sure. Nick, it says in the letter that Haman was crucified. It doesn't say he was hanged or impaled. Uh, why, Why crucified? Where'd that come from? Yeah, so the New Revised Standard maintains that he was hanged. Um, And I'll let you address this in more detail. But for me, the bigger mix-up here is the location of of Haman's death and and also um, uh, the the timing that's associated with it as well because uh, Haman is hanged at his house months before um, his sons are killed. And yet yet we're told that uh, they're both... uh, hanged at the city gates right and uh and yet so there's there's discrepancies here um and perhaps outright contradictions on some levels but uh that seems to be the bigger mix-up here it's not very coherent my perspective anyway uh what did you find about this crucifixion business yeah i wonder you know was the New Revised Standard Version, did they choose hanged for consistency's sake, or did they actually have a a different manuscript? Were they favoring? Uh, I don't know. I know that in the Greek, as I have it in the uh, Lexham English Septuagint, reverse and linear, the Greek storao always means crucified, means hung on a cross. Um, There's another word for hanging. Uh, It's the word aponko, and that's the word used for when Judas hangs himself in the New Testament. So, um, yeah, so I, I I think this is one of those details that really has no meaning in terms of changing or adding to a single version of the story. Uh, it seems that this is just a different version of the Esther story. It's following a different line of details that's separate from the version that we have today in the Masoretic text. And this is one of those details that doesn't really answer to uh, the idea of the Masoretic text is in response to the Septuagint, or the Greek version is in response to the Masoretic. I don't think there's a back and forth, like a battling of stories. They're just two separate story lines, two separate traditions, and, and the details that really sort of give that away, this is one of those details. In this version, he's crucified. One of the things that's mentioned in the 24th verse of this edition is about... Uh, wild animals and birds. Uh, Alex, why would beasts and birds be included in the threatened wrath of the king? Yeah, not only is the land destroyed to where people can't inhabit it, it says not even beast or bird will inhabit it forever and ever. So it's this huge, you know, hyperbolic statement. In our featured creature segments that we've been doing, I've noticed that the demons are spoken of most often in the context of some city or nation being destroyed. The destruction being so bad that it turns into the desert, into the wilderness. And we all know who lives in the desert. Demons. And here it sounds like that the threat given in the decree is that uh, those who don't go along with this, they'll be so badly destroyed for disobeying the decree, not even the demons will want to dwell in that land when I'm finished with it. (laughs) So birds and beasts often representing demonic spirits in the context of a nation's destruction. So that's what I found. Last but not least. Yeah, last section. Edition F, 10, 4 through 11, 1. Alex, you want to summarize for us? Yeah, Edition F. Finally, 
finally, an apocalyptic vision with an actual interpretation. <laughs> so, Mordecai explains, go figure, explains the meaning of his own dream. That it was symbolic in meaning, and it represents certain people. The river was Esther. Uh, the two dragons were Haman and Mordecai. The nations are the people who wanted to attack the Jews. The righteous, humble nation was Israel that had been mixed throughout the empire. If this is an example of how people in the time of biblical writers were in the habit of interpreting their own apocalyptic literature, then guess what? We better pay attention. <laughs> this, this section, it also closes with um, the idea that Purim exists and illustrates a, a larger lot that was cast before the time of Haman, the divine lots that Yahweh had already cast from ancient times, the lot for the Israelites to be his people, and another lot for the Gentiles to be separate. And the letter uh, ends with a quick note about the Hebrew origin of the letter, its translation, its transmission into the hands of Egyptian authorities, and that's edition F, the end of Greek Esther. So let's circle back here and talk about uh, a bit about the hermeneutics here, right? Should this addition uh, F of Greek Esther, should this end of Greek Esther be our hermeneutic for interpreting apocalyptic literature? Well, let this be a sober note to the diligent listener who dives into the book of Revelation. It seems that, yes. We should use Second Temple literature to help us, it's a help, right, to help us interpret other Second Temple literature. Go figure. So when we see visions of trees and rivers and mountains and other nature elements, then we should probably not be thinking of actual trees and rivers and mountains. We should be thinking of people. We should be thinking of the people that these trees represent the river, the people that these rivers represent, etc. Uh, the same also goes for other elements like the sun, moon, and stars and dragons. This, I think, would be helpful in our efforts to best understand Revelation and apocalyptic literature in general. On the other hand, <laughs> relying upon fiction, so-called, for our hermeneutics uh, I think we need to be cautious with that uh, so I guess I would advocate a more cautious approach to leaning upon uh, these works of fiction for a hermeneutic that's my take on it I think the scriptures should be interpreted in its own ancient context and that includes things that aren't scriptures, which gives us insight into what they were thinking when they used certain types of literary techniques. That's what I think. Well, Nick, why do you think these additions were made to the book of Esther? Yeah, so we're at the end of the book. Yay, we did it. Yay. <laughs> uh, we're at the end of these additions. Um, you know, reading reading Hebrew Esther with its subtlety and its amb ambiguity, and then reading Greek Esther with its 
overt and copious references to God. Uh, It's kind of like what happens with movies. And perhaps no other recut movie is more famous than Blade Runner. Studio executives and producers thought the plot was too hard to follow, the atmosphere was too brooding, and the end too ambiguous, and therefore, for the theatrical release, they had narration, voiceover included in it, and they forced Ridley Scott to include a happy ending. And I think this happens a lot when studios think moviegoers are not smart enough to figure out the subtle themes and appreciate the ambiguity in a movie. And I think that's what happened down in Alexandria, in Egypt, or even perhaps in Palestine, if that's legitimate, with Hebrew Esther. Will pious Jews be able to follow the hidden providence of God in the lives of Esther and Mordecai in Israel? Nah. Rewrite. So they included a bunch of bonus material to help the story along when I don't think the story needed any help at all to begin with. So there's that component to it. What do the what do the actual additions give the story of Esther? And and there's at least two things. There's probably more, but one thing is it theologizes Esther, right? It overwhelmingly it changes uh, Esther to uh, include a more theological emphasis, whereas Hebrew Esther does not mention God once. Greek Esther incorporates over 50 references to God. Mordecai tells Esther to fear God and keep his laws. Uh, Second, uh, excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 20, uh, which recalls uh, what? The Shema, love God, keep his commandments, right? Mordecai tells Esther to call on the Lord, that is to pray in chapter 4 and verse 8. At the climax of the narrative, God changes Xerxes' disposition toward Esther in uh, 15 and verse 8. The Lord is responsible for Xerxes' insomnia, 6 verse 1. Haman's friends and wife refer specifically to the living God uh, in 6 verse 13. And, of course, all of the major editions, except for edition B, includes specific mention of God. And so Hebrew Esther is thoroughly theologized in the Greek verse version. In addition to that, you have a very strong emphasis on maintaining Torah observance among the Gentiles. And as noted in edition F, there's there's a a strong dividing line between Jew and Gentile. Uh, You have Esther's revulsion at the uncircumcised bed and her adherence to the Jewish dietary laws. And that similarly points to the need to maintain diligence in keeping Torah, even while scattered in the diaspora. And so I think those are two main things. Throw God in there, and you got to maintain Torah uh, while you're living out there. Uh, So those are a couple things that, that stand out for me. What do you think, Alex? Well, that's an interesting paradigm that you frame that all within, uh, the idea that uh, this is the Greek Esther's, uh, the, the poor attempts of someone to uh, get the message across to a, to a dumb Jewish audience. I'm not sure if I agree with that paradigm. <laughs> In fact, I do not. The problem is, is that you see both types of writings throughout the entire Bible, right? Some stories have little to no mention of God, like the book of Ruth, uh, parts of Judges, but 
most of the historical narrative told within the Bible, it does have God overtly mentioned throughout the stories. So is most of the Bible then a rewrite of some better and more subtle version lost to antiquity? I think not. The problem lies in assuming that these are additions in the first place. This seems to be a different version of Esther, not an intentional rewrite of Esther as we have it in the Masoretic text. And there are some serious implications to that notion, as we'll see in the next question. And so uh, moving on to uh, the next question, how do we know which text then, Nick, we should prefer for the story of Esther, the Hebrew text as we have it in the Masoretic today, or the Greek text as we have it in the Septuagint? So Wickham and Wheelock in the Lexham Bible Dictionary, in their article about the additions to Esther, they present three possibilities of the relationship between uh, the Masoretic text, the Septuagint text, and also uh, the Alpha text of Esther. Uh, one is that the Alpha text represents first the, the first Greek translation of Hebrew Esther with the Septuagint replacing it later. Uh, another theory is that the uh, Alpha text is actually a revision of the Septuagint. And then you have that the Alpha text and the Septuagint text are independent translation of different Hebrew texts that are independent of the Masoretic text. For me, the thing that stands out is all three theories assume a Hebrew text for Esther. Uh, the Masoretic text, or something, as they call it, nearly identical to the Masoretic text. And therefore, I am inclined to view the Hebrew, what we have in our canonical scripture, as the text we should prefer over against Greek Esther. My take, what do you think? You know, it was once suggested to the church father Origen who lived between 186 and 253 AD, early on in the church. And it was suggested to him that Christians reject the spurious Greek copies of Scripture used within the churches, and that they be replaced with Hebrew copies. And what was Origen's response? Origen's response was, are we to suppose that the providence that in the sacred Scriptures has ministered to the edification of all the churches of Christ, had no thought for those bought with a price for whom Christ died, whom although his son, God who is love, who is love spared not, but gave him up for us all, that with him he might freely give us all things, his letter to Africanus, uh, book four. The Septuagint was the Bible of the church. And I speak especially to our brethren in the churches of Christ. Our motto to be as the first century church was, to go back to our roots, to be that first century church is to have a Septuagint Bible in your hands. That includes Greek Esther. One either concludes, as Origen alluded to, that the church was working with defective, bunk, uninspired text for 400 years, and then we finally got the right copies from Hebrew, or 
One concludes that what we had in the first place, the thing that was quoted overwhelmingly by the New Testament writers, was right to begin with and shouldn't have been so quickly abandoned. That's my take. And it comes down to our last question. Nick, which version of the story is better in terms of storytelling, the Hebrew or the Greek? Hebrew, hands down. It's like comparing the book to the movie, the book is always better. And you say? (laughs) The Greek, easy win. The Greek is the director's cut with all the extra scenes and the better character development. The Hebrew is the shortened and dumbed-down version. The Masoretic text is for the people with short attention spans. And that brings us to our featured creature. Featured creature. This time, our featured creature for the week is the Rephaim. Nick, why don't you tell us about the Rephaim? So the the word, the Hebrew term, Hebrew? Why are we doing Hebrew? Anyway, the Hebrew term, <laughs> I'm just messing, um, is, if I'm not mistaken, it's like used 25 times in the, the Hebrew Bible. And so uh, it refers to at least two different things. One is a people group. The Rephaim were one of the four tribes subdued by King Kedorlamir and the kings that were allied with him yeah. over in Genesis 14, especially verses 5 through 6. They were one of the nations that occupied the land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, you get that promise in Genesis uh, 15, especially. Uh, but there's, those, those nations are specifically mentioned in verses 19 through 21, especially verse 20. Later on, Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Rephaim, Deuteronomy 3 and verse 11. And when he's killed, that means the end of their line. The Rephaim, they were comparable in size to the Anakim. Uh, In Deuteronomy 2, verse 11 and verse 21 tells us that. And apparently, they went by different names among other nations. The Moabites called them the Emim. The Ammonites called them the Zamzumim. Again, Deuteronomy 2, 11, also verse 20. So, people group. The other way that this uh, term is used is in relation to dead people. Uh, the spirits of the dead who enter into Sheol, the unseen realm of disembodied spirits, are sometimes referred to as the Rephaim. Uh, in fact, eight times the word Rephaim is translated in the ESV as the dead, four times, the departed, twice, and shades, two times. The idea seems to be that the deceased person has a continued, albeit shadowy, existence after death. Typically, these shades are paralleled with the dead generally. For example, you could see Psalm 88 and verse 11 for an example of that. Although there are times, like Isaiah 14 and verse 9, that the emphasis is on the dead kings of the earth. And so... Uh, that's a bit about what I found about the Rephaim. Alex, why don't you take it from here? Well, this is the featured creature, and there's nothing featured creature about regular people. So here are the Rephaim. The Rephaim are a very peculiar people because they are also giants. Og of Bashan, last of the Rephaim, he had an interesting sized bed. It was made of iron. And it was 13 and a half feet long by six feet wide. Get that in Deuteronomy 3, 11 through 13. That's a big bed. 
Why mention the size of the bed if it doesn't relate to him at all being larger than normal? That Rephaim are actually giants is pretty clear from the Septuagint, which just straight up translates the word Rephaim as giants in Joshua 4.12 and Joshua 13.12. Now the sons of Anak and all the other tribes you listed, those are also giants which is made explicit, again, in the Septuagint, looking at Numbers 13.34, Deuteronomy 1, verse 28. Anakim are said to be part of the Nephilim, which means the Nephilim are giants as well. All right, folks, uh, Goliath came from somewhere. Giants roamed the earth. Bashan now, Aga Bashan, last of the Rephaim, right? That territory, Bashan, was considered the territory of the Rephaim. And here's an interesting note. Bashan is equivalent to the Ugaritic word Bathan. Bathan means in Ugaritic place of the serpent. Interesting. Ugaritic texts also mention Bashan being the dwelling place of the Rephaim. Bashan was located in the northern section of ancient Israel, known today as the Golan Heights, situated at the foot of Mount Hermon. And in Second Temple literature, Bashan was believed to be the mountain that fallen watcher angels descended upon in rebellion against God before taking human women as wives and bearing uh, offspring called Nephilim. So Bashan was also believed to contain geographical locations that led into the underworld. One of those locations Jesus happens upon in the New Testament. It's Pan's Grotto. Caesarea Philippi, and there he takes his apostles and tells them that the gates of Hades, that's the underworld, will not overcome the church, which is a powerful object lesson, right Right on location. Right after that, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. Which mountain is right there? It's Mount Hermon. So there he is transfigured, right? He throws down the cosmic gauntlet, and uh, we know from Ugaritic texts from the ancient Near East Uh, that Rephaim are described also as quasi-divine dead warrior kings of the underworld. And this aligns well with Second Temple demonology, which says that demonic spirits are the disembodied giants of old, dead Nephilim, who rule in the underworld, and some who remain upon the earth for the punishment of mankind under the authority of Satan. So in summary... The Rephaim were giants. They were descendants of fallen angelic fathers and human women who died and now remain as demonic spirits upon the earth and rulers in the underworld. That's your Shades connection. And that is the Rephaim. Featured creature. <laughs> um, hey, so you mentioned Og, the size of his bed. That's right. Yeah, well, I mentioned the size, except that he's larger than normal. So our Laird Harris in uh, the theological word book of the Old Testament in, includes an editorial note in the entry for Rephaim. And he says, As to Og's famous bed, it may have been a sarcophagus which was large, not because Og was a giant, but because other objects would have been buried with him. And that's a, that's a great stripping of the supernatural from the text. That's an excellent way to read that if you want no supernatural things. <laughs> Well, that's, that's going to do it. Creature. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, because I'm sure people are at home listening, and like, man, these guys, 
They're like going back and forth on this stuff. Aren't they got, friends? Yeah, you got to understand. <laughs> we love each other. Hey, uh, well, maybe we should do it some other time. Um, I was going to ask, do you remember what we argued about the very first time? A bit of, like a, a teen camp. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, no, about we... pacifism. What was it? It wasn't about pacifism. I think that's right. It had to do about yeah. war. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Like just war theory and pacifism and stuff like that. Yeah. We yeah. we are very good friends. We love each other. We we disagree about stuff and that's okay. Um it's okay to disagree about stuff from time to time and and I don't know I'll speak for myself and Alex you can you can concur if, if you are so inclined. I enjoy I enjoy doing this. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Not like, just not just the research, but then you know we we do go back and forth, and uh, we did have kind of an after hours type bit there with the with the uh, deter- predetermined and predestined and all that. So yeah, I, I totally agree. Nick and I are good friends. We love each other. We respect each other, and uh, this is this is part of what uh, makes being friends so fun. Is that we can do this sword play. We can go back and forth. We can sharpen uh, each other as iron sharpens iron, right? And that's that's the whole point, right? There's nothing that we've ever said in any podcast where we've had a, a disagreement or a back and forth. There's nothing in any of that that would ever warrant a separation of brotherhood, a splitting of congregation or anything like that, right? That is not... That is not the the intention or the right way to handle disagreement within the church. You don't split. You don't run. You don't uh, backbite, right? You don't hold bitterness in your heart. It's like, listen, you 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 put it out on the table, and uh, you dish it out, and you take it, and you let it hone you and refine you. And uh, you know, this is this is part of the body growing, edifying itself, building itself up. It takes hard work, and that's all Nick and I are doing. And so uh, if any of you uh, have had a panic attack or have become anxious through our debates, uh, (laughs) be at ease. Be calm. Nick and I are still on the same team. Yeah, and the other thing is we we present different perspectives. Sometimes we're in agreement, right, Um, to be expected. Sometimes we have different views. We had different views today. But we put the information out there, and we invite you, diligent listener, to do your homework, to read the uh, not just the extra bits, but the whole book of Greek Esther, and listen to the podcast, and come to your own conclusions about um, what it is, where it came from, what it's communicating, right? And... Uh, uh, and and in that way, you are growing too, because that's that's really what we want with this is uh, is positive growth in Christ Church. That's right. Well, uh, we're going to skip the outro today. I'm just going to say, um, see you next time on another episode of Sword Play. I uh, have some kid emergency going on in the background, so I'll uh, I'll go tend to my youngins. But thanks for tuning in to Greek Esther. Thanks for hanging in there with us for almost two hours, and we will see you next time on another episode of Sword Play. Bye.